0: Hello and welcome to the MIC Plus One podcast, where I sit down with industry leaders to dive into the future of connected work. I'm your host, Mick Kirsten, Chief Technology Officer of PlanView, and the author of the best selling book, Project to Product How to Survive and Thrive in the Age of Digital Disruption with the Flow Framework. My guest today is George Kadifa, a renowned business executive and technology visionary with a wealth of experience and expertise in this ever-evolving tech landscape. Today, we're diving into the captivating world of generative AI, and who better to guide us through this nascent territory than George. Throughout his illustrious career, George has demonstrated a keen eye for up-and-coming technologies and predicting how they will change entire industries. His journey in the tech industry began with his roles at prominent companies in the 1990s, including Oracle and Corio. I met George in 2014 when he was running HP software and was making waves leading transformative initiatives around cloud adoption, big data, and mobility. In 2015, George became a founding partner at Sumeru Equity Partners, where he continues to contribute to the growth and development of technology-driven companies. And I had the pleasure of having him serve on a task board. Today, we'll be discussing the groundbreaking technological leap of generative AI and how it impacts the entire technology and enterprise landscape. So with that, let's dive in. It is just a delight to have you on the Project Product Podcast. Just as a, some quick context, uh, I sat down with you in January and then all the things I thought were really moving quickly around generative AI and large language models. Yeah, you emphasized for me and, and completely changed the trajectory of, of everything I was doing in, in that one meeting. <laughs> that was a pivotal <laughs> moment. So I think we'll, we'll try to recreate some of that pivotal moment, that, that, that lunch conversation that we had uh, today, because I think you've. I do want to kind of cover your career and everything you've seen over, over these decades and why you think this is such a fundamental shift for every enterprise and software and digital organization. But before we get started, can you just tell us a little bit about how you, know, how you got to be so interested in f- be focus- focusing so much of, of your own time today on this new movement?
1: Uh, hi, uh, Mick, and, and great uh, connecting with you. And thank you for hosting me on, on your program. Yeah, is, I remember that, uh, you know, where, where we met in January at, at that restaurant. And, uh, and it was a quick meeting because I know you were, you know, between meetings yourself, as usual, you're very busy visiting your customers. And uh, yeah, it is uh, really, I've been uh, watching AI for a while now and uh, looking at the various implications of it. And uh, at the end of last year, in 2022, it started becoming quite interesting from a creative perspective. That is, everyone expected AI to uh, automate things, uh, and software in general through workflow automation to keep automating. So, routine tasks. What people didn't expect was a creative side. Suddenly, being able to generate new content or generate new code or generate new images or videos or uh, or in in a multimodal fashion that was a big surprise and 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 so so the whole conversation with the machine suddenly has dramatically changed and so that generative ai moment uh you know is so i was literally in the middle of trying to understand when we met and it definitely was unique in the sense it is i've been in the tech industry for 40 years and i've seen Anywhere from the move from, you know, centralized systems to distributed systems, then the internet, then mobility, then social media, this is going to be huge. This is going to be all all of these movements combined, if not more. Because fundamentally, we've broken Turing's law. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, Alan Turing basically has a test that says, and his test was, if a machine seems to talk to you like a human being, then we're getting close to human intelligence. And that's what generative AI has done. It has actually addressed that. It has fulfilled, you know, the Turing test. And we're up to a great future. I'm very, very optimistic. I know a lot of people say, you know, warn about AI and have lot of warnings in a variety of ways, and they should be taken very seriously. But on a net basis, it's going to be a tremendous opportunity for all of us
0: and so george because it was one thing i was i was kind of sensing this myself starting you know in like a lot of us november december what was going on but it wasn't actually till you said it because you you have been a, actually a core part of a lot of these movements in terms of the the entire age okay. of software right so so when you said it, it made me reflect on that kind of you know some of our common history at xerox Park, but but tell us take us back to those early days when when you actually witnessed some of the the first changes in technology at Park at Fairchild and, and elsewhere.
1: Yeah, yeah, that is. I started my career really building uh, what we used to call VLSI chips, very large scale integration chips, where we were putting, in those days, a million transistors on the chip, which we thought was was huge. And uh, at Fairchild, when which was my first job, uh, we built one of the first, you know, processors that were embedded in in other systems so it wasn't in a you know as a personal computer in those days but it was could embed these high-end microprocessors in any situations anywhere from uh, vehicles to planes to and and that was a fly-by-wire movement and uh, and then i moved to xerox to the palo alto research center i had three great years there where we saw the future there in the sense that think about the world where it was green screens in those days, where it was teletypes, character modes, uh, where the speed of communication was 1200 baud, you know, 1200 bits per second. And then what we, what uh, Xerox Spark did, like what Google Brain has done recently, which is create all the technologies that created the modern world of distributed computing, from the personal computer, to the mouse, to the Windows user interface, to laser printing, to defining uh, like PostScript, you know, like Adobe does, to uh, network automation, to distributed systems in general. And even there were new versions of what we used to call four, four uh, four generation languages, which were the precursor to Lisp, which was one of the first artificial intelligence languages. So all of this stuff happened in the late 70s, early 80s and translated into in a classic Silicon Valley way into a huge number of startups. Startups like 3Com or startups like Cisco or startups like Sun Microsystems or Adobe or others. All of these spawn out of those movements and and the world got created. And then the Internet came next. Uh, At that time, I was at Oracle. And we started looking and working with, actually, Silicon Graphics in those days. Silicon Graphics had one of the first technologies uh, and were very, very deep into, into internet uh, capabilities at that time and technologies. And uh, and we and, and then the rest was a future. I left uh, Oracle to really build the first company that put enterprise software on the internet and managed that enterprise software on the internet. And we saw that movement explode where every enterprise software vendor had to go and rewrite their software to be internet ready. And that's where companies like Salesforce.com got created, NetSuite, others. That's where the world has changed in that regard. And uh, and then, you know, next thing that happens was the iPhone and mobility became first everything, you know. And then that spawned a whole set of companies and business models like airbnb like uber you know uh, like instagram you know even facebook uh really didn't grow until the mobility solution of facebook uh came into play and then you know while when we thought uh, that everything was done and spoken for then now uh, you know generative ai hits us again and as i mentioned again uh this is very very exciting and uh And it's going to be as big, if not big, than than all of these combined because it fundamentally changes the way we think and we leverage the information we have around us. And the the key point here is uh, this is as important as the age of enlightenment because the scientific method, the method that says this is how we assess and understand the world around us, the scientific method through generative AI is going to be revolutionized. We're going to be able to comprehend and understand very complex situations in, in, a, in a very comprehensive way. And, and so that instead of like, for, to give you an example, like Newton saw two variables, mass and acceleration, as the way to measure force. So think about what Newton could have done if he would be able to have, instead of two parameters, two billion parameters. You know the understanding of the physical world, of the biological world, the potential in medicine alone is going to be huge. So again, very very excited, and it's just the beginning of a great journey for the next fifty years.
0: Yeah, that, that that's that's you've had an incredible story, George, and I, I actually I look fondly back to uh, just to touch on a part of it. Uh, when I first got to Xerox Park, I had a Silicon Graphics machine on my desk, and I, and I still miss how amazing <laughs> 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 their, their machines were.
1: Um, they used to be purple in those days. I know. Yeah. yeah, they
0: they yeah. had some great, colorful industrial designs. So yeah, but so you, you know you saw that. I I just I remember I had this moment where you know I was working at, at Xerox Park, and I went to work for Charles Simony, and who, as an intern from Park, brought word from from Park to to Microsoft back then. Microsoft, yeah. And yeah. this was. I guess this was back in two thousand three, and we were just having these long conversations about AI because I think a lot of us were just kind of expecting AI to pick up and to pick up, and and all, somehow last fall it did. But you know, back then he said because we were looking at, at new programming languages, and even then Charles knew that you know programming could become English could become the programming language, right? That's actually what right. we were doing in intentional software. Right. But his view on AI was, and he used these exact words: as, you know, he was telling me he's like. It, it won't be that we're not in the loop. We'll just have a co pilot that's much more powerful than we are. And partly because yeah. he yeah. liked to fly planes a lot. So he he appreciated yeah. the power of co pilot. But so can you tell us how this, you know, and, and as, as you got into it, as you read that amazing article by Stephen Wolfram and, and such, how your understanding of what was going on changed? Because that, that's what I found happened is that everything I understood about AI and having, you know, back in school, build some neural networks and so on. This is very different. This is like, like the Enlightenment again.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, what changed uh, fundamentally is one is there's a new architecture called uh, deep learning or network-based or neural networks. Uh, people started initially to experiment with neural networks because they wanted to emulate the brain. To see because the brain has neurons and synapses, so they thought they'll do something similar to it. As a matter of fact, when I was a graduate student at Caltech we had we were building a neural network with 64 CPUs, and we thought that that was amazing in those days. So they started with that, and what was interesting is that compute technology kept evolving and evolving to a level where in the 2012, 2014 timeframe, with Alex Krasinski and the guys at University of Toronto, they were able, and ImageNet, they were able to show that these networks are able to uh, interpret images. And that was the first time where it was proven mathematically and practically that that was the case. Before that, there was a huge winter. A lot of people actually were against neural networks. Uh, when I, uh, I took a class at Stanford for artificial intelligence in 83, it was less and it was more expert systems that are a set of rules. They used to have these huge rules in place. It never scaled. So what neural networks have done is it has shown, because now we have the scales for these networks and the GPUs, the basic computing units underneath, is we have a new computing architecture that allows huge scale and can interpret a lot of information. And what it showed is at a certain level of scale, something new happens. Mm -hmm. So if it is 64 CPUs, nothing is going to happen when it is a billion gpus magic happens suddenly new ways of comprehension start happening like right now in generative ai you can generate jokes literally you know and you know and you can do more uh, accordingly so 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 what what the neural networks have done because it's a huge optimization machine they showed that you can have local uh, optimum local maximization points. You don't need to have the perfect maximization point. If you get close to it with enough computation behind it, you have comprehension. Uh, so that the first thing that, that happened. And the second thing that happened was, and, the, and thanks to the internet and mobility, is a huge amount of information is available. So that availability of the information, that is 300, 300 billion data points on the internet that's what gpt3 used Uh, and more you know you can do also and now you can understand even beyond just the digital world you can go back to the analog world and read it that availability of information you know allows us to actually make a lot of sense from the compute that we have and and from the environment we have so the technological foundation is there to, to basic, and, and same way as in the old days, the internet got invented or suddenly the iPhone became real or, or the personal computer became real in the past. So now we have deep learning is real and deep learning with a lot of information is, is critical. The second piece is, you know, we, have, we are shifting from a world, a software world where we were driven by workflow, where the value is to information where the value is. That is, if you look at all the enterprise software companies today, they all are workflow-based SaaS companies. Look at SAP, look at Oracle, look at Salesforce, look at Workday, others. They all are, you know, workflow-based SaaS environments, which is great. But the information availability now, what you can do with information, is where the value is all about. Because you can take that information and you can create insight from it. And the insight is where artificial intelligence comes in because it gives you predictive capabilities and it gives you generative capabilities where you can generate stuff based on that information. So suddenly there's a massive shift from workflow as a source of value to information as the source of value. And I would not underestimate Uh, That shift because it's going to fundamentally change the way we we communicate back to a computing machine. It's going to be tremendously different. And you're right. uh, You know, English is going to be the new language of computing.
0: Well, and so I think that that's a fascinating statement that you're making. With I think a lot of our audience actually works with, works on, or or uh, runs their businesses on these on this this generation of workflow engines, right? And the fact that this is going to change completely, obviously the I think to be the fact that there there is actually enough r- reasoning capability, probably you know more than there is in my brain in GPT four today, um, <laughs> right? Is is fascinating. So and then so George, I want to dig into that because I, I spend so much of my time on this right now is looking how we can turn this world of workflows and that's what we've been doing for 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 so long with you know flow and value management and so on is actually understanding the workflow of all these right down to the team tools like Jira and GitHub and GitLab to to some of those more enterprise level tools that you mentioned so the and the fact that of course the fascinating thing with auto-GPT and agents is they can actually speak back to the workflow tools. So all of a sudden, you've got data from workflow tools, you've got right. insights, they can be predictive, and then they can act back on the workflows. Right. So, I guess, the what do you see happening? Is this going to be another generation of, of companies, another genera- another age in terms of how we think of how people work? Where where, where do you see, How do you see this evolving, I guess? And of course, it's so hard for us to predict what the next now 6 to 12 months looks like. Just if you could start giving us some guidance on, on just how to how to think about this in terms of how it might be impacting people deploying or experimenting with or, or pivoting their, their organization around generative AI?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, no question, uh, Mick. The first point is, let's start with coding, with software development. You know, we are going to be able, as software developers or managers or people who have large software organizations, there's going to be a huge productivity boost. Because generative AI, and you know, be it through things like Copilot or Code Whisperer, or whatever technology is there, for one individual, you're going to augment the capability of this individual software prog- programmer by a factor of 10. Yes. Uh, so suddenly the cost of producing code is going to dramatically drop. And 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 people, you know, when when, when you tell that to people, the first reaction is, does that mean we need less software developers? And my answer is absolutely not. What this means is the software development uh, capability is going to multiply by 10X. So we're going to need, we're going to be able to generate 10 times more codes, hence 10 times more products out there. So there is a whole renaissance that is waiting for us to happen, where suddenly individuals are able to have the power of teams. And teams are able to have the power of of large organizations, where software productivity is going to improve very, very significantly. And if you follow any, uh, any economic law, basically when the cost of a good drops, the volume for that good or the demand for that good is going to multiply upward so 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 we're we're at the cusp here of a renaissance in software productivity that is going to create new products very fast with high quality that can deliver new experiences that we haven't we, we cannot even foresee today that is if in 2003 Mick, people would have told you that you could land at the airport You pull a phone, and in five minutes there's a car waiting for you who knows who you are, and you know who they are, and it will deliver to you at your destination in a predetermined time. And that's something that you know you you know will be a product. You would have debated someone's sanity at this time. But you know, it's reality. So so a lot of this stuff is going to happen and happen very, very quickly. And that's why I'm very optimistic. Clearly, there will be people out there who basically will take, try to take advantage of that for a variety of, of other non-beneficial reasons. And we as a society and with governments have to protect uh, individuals the same way we protect individuals today. But in, it has to be even planned and managed the right way. But however, that is not going to stop that new renaissance in software. With it, the productivity of organizations, when suddenly you have all these tools available for you. The productivity of organization is also going to improve significantly. And including things like in research, you know, like proactive the productivity, for example, of drug discovery and drug development and introducing new medicines is going to be amazing. And 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 we already are seeing some of these uh, results today, and this is going to be multiplied also. And this is going to have a significant impact on the lifetime, lifespan of all of us as a species and also on our quality of life uh, across the 80 or even 100 years that we're all going to be living going forward. That is, my, our children are going to have a tremendous future for them from a medical and health perspective, which also opens with a healthier in, uh, you know, human base. You're, and, and the longer lifespan, you're going to even have even more opportunities to create because you will be, at, for example, you can be someone at the age of 80 with a lot of experience, still capable to perform and to deliver to society what people used to do the same at the age of 40. So there's a lot going on that way. You know, Even enterprises, the, the interface between the in enterf- enterprise and the consumer, is going to be significantly uh, revolutionized because the interface is going to be natural it's going to be a natural language interface in any language not just english because translation is going to be uh, immediate you can you know today we we can type and translate using translate.google.com but you can do that you know in the future actually not in the future today you you can do this almost on a real time basis and the whole element of what a customer or a consumer will see when they interact with an enterprise is going to be tremendous. The so way you interact with your bank, you just talk to someone. And the someone could be a bot and then things will happen. You don't need to input anything. You, don't, you might not even need passwords. Uh, you, know, you will be authenticated by your face or by your voice or by your biology or whatever it is. So, again, I'm, I'm very, very optimistic, and it all will start from software development productivity. And where, Nick, you know, what, what you and desktop and now at PlanView have been advocating over the last decade or so, you know, I'm, 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 I'm so proud to be associated with you because you saw the future and it's going to be great going forward on the software development side.
0: George, I can't tell you how much inspiration and and help I've drawn on from you. So it's more than mutual. But but I so to me it's, it creates this this conundrum in terms of where we are right now because I agree with you. And there's this you know Jevons paradox where steam engines got much more productive. Right. There's actually you know everyone thought coal consumption would decrease and increase. We're going to have I, I agree with your right. prediction. We're right. we're going to have more software and it's going to unleash incredible things that that weren't possible before because we've all been constrained on software, right? Companies, right banks have 10 billion dollar plus it budgets most of it right. are going to developers all of this changes but then at the same rate what we're seeing in the in the actual data of organizations value stream is that 8% of the time spent delivering things is is in code everything else is just basically waste sitting elsewhere so the, right. the, the vet, for the companies that I think you have the, the pleasure of working with regularly they they actually are going to be able to maximize this but so many right. organizations they have such large inefficiencies that are outside of the code in their processes, dependencies, you know, capacity demand mismatch, and so on. Mm. Can we, I guess my hope also is that we can not just basically scale the code level through this by 10x, but scale that next level up, that value stream level, how companies deliver and innovate with their customers mm. a- another 10x. So uh,
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: So how, how do you see that Evolving because this is, I think, one of the things that's that's you know then then we're talking hundred <laughs> x, correct. And then correct. it's uh, those are s- some massive gains. Do you think you know some companies will get to it sooner than than others? Do you think this will fundamentally change um, the you know basically the enterprise landscape, the the tool vendor landscape? And I know, of course, we're all tea leaf reading, but but you, you you've seen more tea leaves than than most of us, and have made some amazing bets over the years. So.
1: Yeah, yeah no, That is, if we all know, uh, Mick, what we grew up with software, it was a negative scale industry. That is, the classic law in those days, the mythical man month or Brooks Law basically says the more people you add in software development, the worse it gets. And, you know, for a while, uh, people believed in the 10xers, basically individuals who on their own could code 10 times better than teams. And this is recent. You know, I'm talking the last 10 years. That's where people, you know, people will go to these universities or research centers and try to recruit these unique individuals, these what I call artists in some way. They're people who are unique with unique, that are very gifted to do that. What we're seeing now is finally software development is becoming a scale industry where when you can apply techniques, and generative AI is one of them, where an individual is more and more productive with tools around that individual and support systems around it. So that's the first component is on an individual level, you have a significant boost in productivity that 10x that will, will, will get realized. The way you debug code, the way you write code, the way you write comments about code, the way uh, you integrate code, all that stuff, You know, we're seeing it today. And it's just a question of deployment. It's just a question of using these tools. And and the next step is the processes around it, the value stream management around it. And really make what you have delivered and you are delivering now in plan view is again, the power of information in these work streams. Because you, you can identify the productivity, you can identify where the productivity is good and where are the areas where you can improve it. So you're delivering the power of information again for people to change their workflows. That doesn't happen, that is, if you look at the workflow without the information around it, the metrics around it and the methodologies around it, yeah, you will have one boost of 10X, but it will stop. Now you take that and suddenly it's like having a very fast car, but it's driving, you know, old roads. Now, if you put a the highway there instead, yeah, you're going to, the car, you know, in an old road can drive at 20 miles per hour, but on the highway can drive at 200 miles per hour. And that highway is VSM and the way you're thinking about it. And 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 that combination of a fast car and a stable highway system and with the right, you know, metrics and measurements is where, you know, we can go. And we, we are going. And I'm very optimistic on it.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's a great way to illustrate it. It's like we organizations need that stable highway system so that the generative AI can work, right? And I think you hit on another key point of that, which is which gets back to the data, because you know, all of the work I've been doing in terms of building it with our data science team and our other our product teams building out our our generative AI is I I still get surprised every single week when we, you know, do yet another demo, how much it can do, how powerful it is with how little data in terms of the prompt engineering and of course there's there's a lot you know prompt engineering is becoming the new coding in addition to english as well exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but but in the end it's th- that data so key right so the fact that we've got data from all those team tools as well as up the stack and the agile planning and and strategy and and, and investment tooling is has been fascinating because that that's what it's operating on so you and you've you've talked to me about this and coached me on this for ye- for several years now is the importance of that data so can you can you share that with us? Because in the end, when when compute becomes more automated, when the scaling becomes more automated, that, that data becomes, it seems like it becomes even more critical and, and everyone needs to rethink their strategies on data.
1: Yeah. yeah no, it is, again, with, with generative AI, the reason these neural networks work is not because they have, it's a network. It's because of the information flow that goes through these networks and the adjustments, the continued optimization of the network parameters, and that's and, and and really what happened was when information was in the millions, nothing would happen, and you know, that's why for a long time, people who basically were pushing deep learning or neural networks were criticized in the the research community. Marvin Minsky, you know, the head of the god of AI uh, at MIT for a while in the in the 70s and 80s was, you know, used to ridicule uh, neural networks. Even the, the aha moment happened when suddenly we started dealing with billions of uh, data sets. Suddenly something emerged. It's like almost like uh, like a human consciousness emerged when we evolved from animals, and and something new emerged. And 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 then the more data you kept feeding, and the more nodes you kept adding, so the more bigger your brain became, <laughs> and the more experiences you had with the with the world, the more insight and consciousness you got, and 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 that's going to continue. Uh, that's not going to stop. So and that's the beauty about it. So suddenly uh, you know, and and there are these examples you can show where. Now you can code, but you know tomorrow you can understand various idioms of specific languages. That is, and 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 you can create, uh, you can generate jokes, you can generate poems, you can generate laugh new stuff. All of it is based on the availability and on the value of information. So, so, uh, so this is the greatest example where we show that. The power of uh, of data, the importance of information is now the determining uh, factor in in the economy in general, as well as in computing systems specifically. That is, we all worked in the past where the first thing we used to work on was to put a workflow, understand the business process and re-engineer it, which is fine. But now instead of starting with the process, you have to start with the information, understand what information you have and then feed it into a neural network or a deemed learning system and find out what you find out. Uh, you know, that's a discovery. And you might not be even able to find a causation, you know, in terms of some of the results, which is fine. But at least you can statistically show that it works. And, and that is going to be huge.
0: So then how should organizations, again, because in the end, People need to turn this into rethinking their strategy around data, around user experiences, right? Which will become conversational, and much more powerful than than we ever imagined. As well as I think the point that you're making is it's it's still mind-blowing to me, right? That, that the entire notion of workflow systems will be disrupted. Right. So yeah. what I guess how what guidance do you provide to to organizations, large and small, who want to figure out how they have to actually change their product strategy, their their technology strategy?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think the first thing to do is to collect the information they have on their customers. That is, uh, you know, each one of us, you know, let's say there's a classic organization, a manufacturing company, and they take orders and they get customer support calls, et cetera. When you start collecting all that information and you feed it into a neural network and you start looking at the outcomes and then take also equivalent information, that is not yours specifically but is industry based or is broader in nature or is more based on certain demographics or things the more information you can collect and and interpret and learn from suddenly you're going to get more insight and so you you know allow yourself to be on a journey of discovery for enlightenment, let's put it this way. It's almost Buddhist in way, in a way, but it's really an, an, a journey of discovery for enlightenment. The discovery is absorb all the information you have on your customers, on your suppliers, on your employees, on everything you have. Add it to the information that is available from the outside, add it to la- large language models, bring all the pieces together, put it in real time, and, and try to get insight and try to interpret it and see what it tells you. That, that you know, if you're able to do that, you will basically create new insights, new ways of conducting business, new competitive differentiation, new products, new capabilities, new user experiences, uh, better satisfied customers, and better satisfied shareholders at the end of the day. So, So all of this combined, and, 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 but you have to start with that. You have to allow yourself to change from the way you are today to where you're, you're dri- driving things through workflows and processes to drive things through information. And when you can do that, like the emergence of the chief digital officer or data officer is new. Mm-hmm. You know, The more you can create areas where you can have focused points where you look at your information as the source of competitive differentiation the more you're going to progress
0: so george you're saying that looking forward the value of an organization will will be its its access to and ability to leverage the information
1: uh, exactly and interpret it yeah interpret it and leverage it yeah
0: yeah now i guess it's interesting because there there is an interplay because a lot of organizations you know take a salesforce the information they have is from those workflow systems so somehow these these things do do interact, but you know, because right. obviously all that customer data is, is so incredibly valuable. So okay, so then how do you feed this into? How should people be feeding this into into their product strategies? You know, you're saying all, the, you know, is, are we going to have ten times more products, or the nature of products? I guess you yes. saying there'll be more insights based and workflow based. So how yeah, do you? See, yeah. yeah, how do you see this?
1: Yeah, that's why you need to create what I call insights products. So let's say you're a classic software company and you have a SaaS workflow you deliver, for example, a payable system. Suddenly, if you collect the information from all your customers, and you start interpreting that information, and you're going to say, well, you can predict who's going to pay and who's not going to pay. You can predict the ones who are going to go out of business versus the ones who are not based on the behavior that you're seeing from them. So there's a lot. So suddenly, you you take a workflow system and you can add 10 Insight products on top of it that I look at Insight in a variety of dimensions and in a variety of ways, and suddenly, analytics is where the world will move. Uh, so you're going to move from a workflow automation environment where you know, people have gone through workflow automations or workflow management to streamline their business processes to be more efficient. You know, In the old days, it was a Toyota production model you know, what is a Toyota production model, what was a Japanese miracle is simplicity in workflows. The the key is going to be information now, you know, and, and multiplicity of information. So if you take the information that you have and that you can collect and use it and use machine learning techniques and generative AI to learn from it and to get insight, that's going to be unique. And, and no one would know it, that is, you know, workflows are very easy to, to replicate comparatively, but insights are very difficult because they're inside the organization. The insights would be inside an organization and people would not know how these organizations behave and compete because that is the information that is unique. You know, it is, you know, it is, and, and I say that the workflows are not, you know, new is, you take the general ledger, the financial systems itself, the, la, you know, the general ledger was invented, the double entry accounting was invented by an Italian monk in like the 11th century. And hasn't changed since, you know, versus uh, insight and the ability that we have today in, in understanding the information you have, you can access and turn it into, new insights and new knowledge and new capabilities, that is going to be very long-lasting.
0: Wow. And George, this is still, you know, your point that you made earlier, I think, which is close, might be closely related, is, is this point on 10xers, right? Because I think so many, I think one of the reasons that 10x software developers, and as you mentioned, everyone chasing them, uh, have become so critical and overly critical is is just the complexity. I think we've seen more than a 10x right. increase in the complexity of of software development with all the cloud services, it, yeah. infrastructures, code, everything that's happening, platform engineering. So all of a sudden, we will now have tools that can handle that complexity because for like for right. humans, the cognitive overload we've actually been tracking in developers over the last five, 10 years is is really significant. Right. So are you so are you saying that again? The Toyota production process won and inspired lean manufacturing and then, and then lean and agile because it it continually simplified workflows and, and create that continuous improvement. But are, are you then saying that we will now be able to, just like we will be able to scale software development without 10Xers, but, but with LLMs, are we going to, to now be able to handle highly complex workflows in, in a scalable way?
1: Yes. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Because you think about it. Yeah, let's say you have... 10 million lines of code somewhere sitting somewhere written by someone who has retired, and this is a mission critical piece of code you have today. Uh, you can basically feed that code to an LLM. And it can tell you what's in it. It can debug it for you. It can write comments for you. Suddenly you can take a very complex it's like, you know, it's like image processing. You can take in the complex image, and suddenly it suddenly tells you there's a dog and a cat next to each other sitting in front of a house. Uh, same thing you know it can interpret the code the same way it ter- interprets images. And suddenly so so effectively you have taken a very complex situation and made it much simpler. And that's what uh, you know and, and that's where uh, that's the power here. That's a fundamental revolution that we're going through right now is to be able to resolve complexity. Or, you know, like in medicine, same thing in biology, you can comprehend uh, new uh, uh, molecular structures you could not uh, in the past because it's so complex. So anything that is complex, you can address now, which in the past you could not. You had to simplify it in the past to understand it. Now you don't need to simplify it anymore.
0: Right. Yeah, that's that's that, that yeah. is yet another yeah. mind-blowing thing to me. And and then, George, as you mentioned, as the thing can keep improving the code, right? Given right. a goal in that Auto GPT style, presumably we'll be able to take a whole value stream and say keep improving this mobile application for general ledgers to to right. keep adding more and more features to it. Give it an right. objective and key result, like a key result of more active users and better net promoter scores, and it'll it'll actually autonomously be able to to continue improving it. So, right. okay, and then so, so George, I think we've taught we've we've touched on the kind of that. That code level we've touched on the sort of the value stream the organization level how else do you think people need to be thinking about as a, in terms of their business as a whole other company functions you know what what guidance are, are you giving to others wondering where to apply it where to move fast where where the priorities
1: are yeah first first advice is be open to the change don't see this as a threat see it as an opportunity it's a huge opportunity it's a huge opportunity and two, uh, realize that if you don't uh, you know, you don't jump on this wave; others will, and you get crushed. Yeah. So the analogy is like you're surfing in in an ocean, and then this new wave is coming. Really try to go and ride it, and try to see what, what's the best way to actually catch that wave. Because if you don't catch it, that wave, the tsunami, is going to come in and and clobber you.
0: Yeah, George. I can't remember the last time I've paddled this hard because with all the. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Exactly, exactly. But, you know, when you ride that wave, it's going to be exhilarating. It's going to be totally new. It's going to be very transformational. And it's going to have massive, huge societal positiveness across the board. And as long as we protect it and and, and make sure that it's used in the right uh, ethical way, I think we're we're, we're due for for a great, another enlightenment generation, to be honest.
0: Those are... That's some amazing and very ins- inspirational words, George. I think, yeah, I I, I could not agree more. So any, and I think we've, we've covered so many of these key topics and thank you again so much for for sharing all of this. And, you know, the I think you've had such an incredible perspective on it and again, how we, we can make this positive. Well, of course, a lot of people, I think, as you said, we have to manage the, the negative consequences. A lot of energy is going into that, but this truly can create a, another renaissance and that period of wealth right. generation we've maybe never seen. So yeah. any other thoughts to leave the audience with in terms of, you know, things to watch out for or things to, uh, to lean into?
1: Yeah, no, I, I also, I want to mention that this is going to be global. This is not going to only be for developing countries or highly industrialized societies. It, think about a company like Indonesia, which hundreds of millions of people in it, or Nigeria where today you can arm every student there or every individual with a smartphone or a laptop. You know, it's the technology is so cheap right now that you could do it. And attached to that, you can have an LLM guide these people. think about the implications there in terms of education, in terms of development, uh, in terms of what uh, people can do now that they're unable to do uh, they were unable to do 10 years ago. So my view here is we need to think about this on a global level. The global south is going to be as important as the highly industrialized, you know, G7 or G twenty countries or whatever. And it's going to be good for everyone. Yes. And and so uh I just want to make sure that you know people don't miss the opportunity across the globe and uh and because it's going to happen for everyone.
0: Yeah, so I think that that will be amazing to to see that unfold and the kind of democratization of, of this value creation. But then, George, right. okay, so <laughs> that triggers uh, maybe a final question for me, and and then your closing thoughts. But what you know, we now know. I I just heard this in some altman say this in passing that while they won't share how much it took to train GPT four, it was definitely over a hundred million dollars. So and this is this is going to get more and more capital intensive. So. How do you see this interplay between the you know cloud vendors who are likely to have the capital to you know right. the three uh to invest in this, that kind of new vendors, you know, whether it's stability or open AI and so on, um, and then everyone else. So how, how should organizations think about like should they be betting on multiple horses? Obviously, I think you know we're, we're Azure right now and Chat in terms of at least all of the work we've been doing, products we've been building are are so far ahead. But Kind of guidance because this thing this will evolve so much over the coming months and I can't even think of years. What do you think in terms of how it will be concentrated in terms of where the foundation level sit versus you know a kind of still a lagging but interesting open source ecosystem and more diverse yeah. set of companies building this themselves.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, if if you look at it, uh, you know, if you look at it from a tech stack perspective. It's following what we knew in other areas, which is the first people who start making money are the hardware vendors. Look at NVIDIA. Yeah. NVIDIA is a trillion-dollar company. Yeah, incredible. And they've done an incredible job. And and that's how it starts, you know, because all these compute requirements, at the end of the day, you have to run them on hardware. So that that starts there first. And And, and what you're going to see, and you're seeing it today, everyone is building a GPU. And it, you know, even all the, you know, all the hyperscalers are building their own and, and, and there is a shortage, a tremendous shortage that way. So the cost of GPU is going to keep dropping based on scale. Then the next level is the same thing is going to happen at the LLM layer, which is uh, the cost of compute and of training and of running is going to keep, uh, keep dropping. That is, The cost of training is high right now, and it's going to improve. But the cost of running an LLM isn't that bad, relatively speaking. So, uh, and it will get even better in this regard. The key debate at the LLM level, at the language models level, is are they going to be closed or open? Yeah. Because, and my belief is open is going to win at the end of the day. Uh, You know, because... If you're a company who is doing prompt engineering or building applications on top of a closed LLM model, you really don't know what's in it. And you don't know it is, you're basing the foundation of your house. You don't know what it is. And either, so you need that visibility. And one way to have that visibility is through open, through an open source LLM model. You know There are several out there like stability is one and has been pushing for that. And or the, uh, the, you know, the irony is open AI, as a company, it says it's open, but the, <laughs> but the language model is closed. Uh, so someone has to figure that out where you have to provide the visibility at these language levels to make sure that people can put, build their castles on top of that foundation. Their businesses on top of that foundation. So there's going to be a big debate. So debate is not going to be on the short term. It's going to be about compute cost and running and all that stuff. On the medium to long term, it's going to be more about open versus closed and around, around protecting and the securing of that of these models. Just make sure that there's no data poisoning that can happen, that there's no, uh, you know, uh, bad actors that can come in. You know, if there's an attack, how do you protect it? So the same way as we protect operating systems today, you know, these are the new operating systems of the new economy. The next layer is going to be information uh, sources. Where is information coming from? Who's going to manage that? Where is the privacy? The, you know, the IP rights, uh, you know, the uh, when in, that is, make you are a source of information today. People are taking your, uh, you know, the information you present, your books, your speeches, your podcasts, and whatever, and they're already into a language model. Do you want to allow that or not? Uh, is this something that, you know, similar to that when we had the issues in social media about personal information and information protection and the right to Uh, to self uh, uh, opt out of things and on, on, on. So there's a whole thing around the information uh, layer on top of the language model layer that we need to understand. Then how far do you do things with prompt engineering? How far do you do things with fine tuning? Mm -hmm. How far do you do things with new language models? Think about biology. The current LLMs really don't solve much in terms of biology. You need a new LLM, a new language model as one famous biologist told me recently, to talk to the cell, you, we need you know uh, to we need to know the language of the cell and talk to the cell because when we arrive at that level of talking to the cell, understanding the language of the cell, we will rejuvenate the cell. It will never die.
0: Oh, right! Because they've learned they basically learned programming languages, which are like English languages, because. We have humans with right. them, but yeah, the language of the Correct. cell is the language, language of the yeah. cell
1: is a different language that we need to learn, and then we can build the language model around it. Wow, you know, right? So, or the language of the car when you talk to a car, the, so so suddenly every element in the universe has its own language, and then you have to ma- to to understand that language and manage it the right way. So again, uh, if you look at the tech stack, you know, you start with the hardware. And that's where the money is made today. Then you go to the LLMs, then you go to the information sources, then you go to the layers on top, the prompt engineering layer and the fine-tuning layer, and then to the real new applications across a variety of disciplines. You know, we're going to see, it is, you know, if I'm in the enterprise software business today, I would, (laughs) you know, I would think hard about where the future is for enterprise software when people can talk to someone, to a machine, and then it can give them immediate insight.
0: Yeah, and then, and then act on that insight.
1: Right. And act on the insight.
0: So, okay. And so, George, just simplifying that slightly, the information sources, again, are critical. And it does feel as this landscape of LLMs and very more specific LLMs evolves... There'll be an ecosystem of them, and my experience is to date, by the way, because we've, you know, what we're doing right now, GPT-4 is so much more powerful, but the lock-in doesn't right. seem that significant. So basically, focusing on the information, the prompt engineering, the product side that, that you've given us some amazing guidance right. on, is sufficient while things change out underneath us.
1: Correct. Yeah, that's why I compare it uh, to a uh, to like an operating system. You know, you can. You know, you don't need to know the details of the operating system as long as you can use its services. A Similar thing here. So,
0: amazing. All right, uh, George. Any any closing thoughts?
1: No, except that uh, I'm I'm very very optimistic and very excited about the future and we're we're on for a great for a great ride, a, a great journey here.
0: Yeah, and I think you are inspiring us all to paddle as, as hard as we can. <laughs> 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 yeah, <I've got> <laughs> many weeks and months. So. Thank you, George. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Mick. Great talking to
0: you. Thank you, George, for joining us on Mick Plus One today. To stay up to date on the digital future of connected work, follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. If you're looking to dive deeper, check out the Project to Product book and note that all of the proceeds go to supporting women and minorities in technology. Thanks and until next time.